Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Europe's climate tech revolution, brought to you by Clementum Capital. I'm Johan Berno, a general partner at Clementum, and I'll be your host. In each episode, I'll have one of Europe's top founders and investors, and we will try to understand how they think about climate, what has led to their success, and what are the best insights they can share with you to accelerate your climate journey. There will be a lot of terrific guests on this show, and we won't shy away from spikes, secrets, and contrarian views. To make sure you don't miss out on any episode and access all the insights, you can subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Hey guys, today I'm receiving Annalisa Winter, the founder of the podcast Future Food. She's also a venture scout and a startup coach, coaching startups to be investor ready and better think about culture and values. This episode is an open conversation between two podcasters who've been on both sides, startup founder and investor. We will share the importance of company culture and values, the key tips for startup founders to impress investors and secure funding for the climate tech ventures, and the crucial importance of understanding the psychology of investors. And trust me, it's not just an art. There are some elements of science in there. Let's get this insightful conversation started. Annalisa, welcome to Climate Insiders. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, the delight to have you. So you and I had a conversation a few weeks ago, and I immediately thought of converting the, all those topics again in a podcast format. So I wanted to structure this episode in three parts, giving maximum tips to startups, to investors, and then finally speaking about the dear topic to both of us, building the right culture that makes everyone feel aligned and at the perfect place to give it all. But first of all, for people that don't know you, what inspired you to start your own podcast on food tech? And how does that tie into all your other advisory activities? Yeah, I always say my job is really hard to explain because I don't know a lot of people that do what I do and I've kind of invented all of it. But the red thread that runs through what I love doing is ecosystem development. And I did that ever since I had my first job working in the startup world when I was 18 years old, really focused on if business is all about relationships, and we'll talk about that today, why relationships matter is when you look at your co-founding team, your culture, your investors. But if business is all about relationships, how do we build great relationships in business? And when you do that, you can unlock all kinds of innovation with different uncommon partners. So I did everything from managing accelerators to running co-working spaces to working inside of a few startups doing fundraising before starting my own business about five years ago doing venture scouting. So I'm often hired in by corporate venture capital arms to figure out who should they invest in, partner with, work with in different capacities. It's different than the VC world because there's that, how do we actually work together and often something concrete besides just giving a startup money. And then on the flip side, I coach startup founders on how to attract the right investors, how to nail their pitch. That includes their sales pitch, which is the first thing they should nail before they go talk to investors is really know what are we selling and do we have product market fit? I'm happy to talk about that too. And then I specifically focused in on food a couple years ago because I realized that food is at the foundation of everything. And when you talk about impact solving the sustainable development goals, you can really trace each of those goals back to food as being the foundation of life. And there's so much innovation connected to so many different things. So I've made that industry my domain and where I play the most. I have a podcast called Future Food with Annalisa Winther, where I talk about the individuals and organizations who are creating a better future through food. And then I also do a lot of speaking and conference moderating around that topic because I tend to know a lot about many different things, kind of like you, able to generally talk great. about the industry and what's going on. That's exciting. And since you're talking about the food at the center of the 
of the universe. Another universe that we're really, that is uh, dear to our heart is the universe of culture. And I actually just wanted to prompt that, just kind of letting you riff on, on vision and culture is something that you are very passionate about. Yeah. So in all the matchmaking work I've done, I realized very quickly that like if you're going to get married or you're looking for a long-term partner, the first thing you're sussing out when you're dating them is trying to figure out, are we a good match? Do we align on our vision for the future we want to build? Do we agree? And then underneath that, you have the question of values, which is how are we going to get there? How do we live the life? How do we approach the decision-making that we do? And we all spend a lot of time in our personal lives focused on our vision and the values. And I do a lot of coaching in and around that. But we don't often take that into the business landscape or the investor landscape. And when you think about it, when you enter a relationship with your co-founder or with an investor, these can be long-term relationships, like five to 10 years. And you might even spend more time with them than you spend with your family, depending on what it looks like. So why are we not having those conversations there? And it's where I love to start working, whether I have a corporate client I'm working with or a single family office saying, what is the vision of what we're doing and creating? Why are we doing what we're doing? What are we hoping to see in the world? That is our North Star for how we operate. And it's the same with the co-founding team who then needs to relate that to the investors of this is the kind of company I want to build. And are you along for the ride? And when that's not in place and that's not in the pitch from the beginning, there often is breakdown in communication later on. And that can lead to all kinds of conflict. And I think you and I have both seen startups die because culture was not in place or the vision and values weren't in place. And then there was all kinds of miscommunication around what are we actually doing? What's what's the point of this company? So what's the first tip that you would give to founders that are getting started? with their culture mm -hmm. and, and maybe to another tip to those that are already along the way and they think they've nailed it, but they actually haven't really spent enough time thinking about it. Yeah. Well, I would say first and foremost, if you haven't sat down with your co-founders where you each write your vision of what you want to create, meaning 10 years from now, what does the company look like? And are you actually aligned? Do you want to build the same size company? And depending on the size of a company you want to build, that's going to influence the kind of investors you want to attract. It's also going to influence the job title you ultimately have. When you're working in an early stage startup, you're doing everything. As you grow as an organization and you scale, you're going to start delegating those roles. So something that founders can also negotiate on is what is the position I want to have in the company? What is it that I ultimately want to do? And how does that then look from there? But just getting clear on vision, roles and responsibilities and impact and writing that down. And I always say, put it on your wall because you might have done the work, but if it was two years ago and it's hitting in some kind of drawer, you'll have forgotten it. And then you kind of lose your why. And looking at that vision on bad days, which there often are on good days and celebrating the small wins is key for, again, creating rituals and culture, but also just keeping your motivation up and keeping it going. So that would be always the first place I say of where to begin. Right. And there's been numerous books written on this topic. Uh, the best I've read is What You Do Is Who You Are from Ben Orvitz. And we'll link everything in the show notes. But how important are values in building a successful? And how do you identify when the culture has gone wrong, really? It, it's something that you can look at uh, every day and, and it's sort of on the positive side. But when the storm hits and you're really in the middle of a difficult situation, how do, how do you make sure the culture and you were, you know, speaking about this uh, asshole or no asshole culture, I would love you to speak about this. How do you yeah. actually establish it? How does that translate into real life? So we always start with the vision of where we're going and values comes right underneath that. Values is both something that you have as an individual, meaning I have certain values that I live by and that I feel honored when I'm living by those values. 
Then you have the values of the organization, which is where, let's say you and I are building a company together. We add our value sets together and then we figure out where do we overlap and what's our like framework for how we navigate and approach the world. When you put that down on paper, it becomes a very powerful communication tool that when you get into conflict or when communication breaks down, you can say, hey, you stepped on our values of no assholes. How do you have that conversation? That first starts with you defining what does it mean to not be an asshole? And if we were to have a conversation around that, you might define it differently than me. So we have to first agree on what does it mean? And then we can always, it's like a living document. You can always adjust your values and add based on what comes up. But when you feel upset or, you know, when you get annoyed, instead of pushing that down, you actually have a conversation being like, when you did this, it made me feel this, which is going back to the relationship talk, exactly what we do in relationships, but very rarely what we do in the workplace. So it's really um, a key point of always going back to when we had a breakdown, what was it? What went wrong? And that's something that you have to remember when you're an early startup, you have your first hires, that's your founding team. You want to get this down right with them. But as soon as you start hiring, how you act becomes the leadership style you have. It's your communication style. They're going to follow you and they're going to learn from you and they're going to act within whatever you set up. So that's where we start communicating our values out. And we need to have conversations with them to make sure we're all kind of rowing the ship in the same direction. And it makes sense. But it is something where you need to be able to clearly communicate. If you say no assholes, but you don't give me examples of what that looks like, or you don't tell me when I did something wrong, and then suddenly I get three strikes, but I never had an idea that I even had one strike against me, we have some issues, right? You can't just let go of someone if you have not communicated to them what they did wrong. Now, I'm, I'm thinking as a founder, because I've been in the shoes, right? I have to deal with fundraising. I have to deal with product. I have to deal with hiring, firing, or, you know, obsessed with all sorts of things. How can I make sure that the culture is right? That seems just so, uh, so out of my league. Uh, would you recommend getting some coaching? Would you um, saying that this is not something that we've been educated into? And uh, for first time founders, they've never been full cycle. So is coaching the answer? Or how can you get external counseling to make sure that you get those things right? There's definitely an element to this, which is working on your personal development and your leadership style and your communication style. But the question you're asking is bigger, which is, as a founder, you're not going to be able to do everything. In mm -hmm. the beginning, yes, you touch all areas of the business, but you're going to have to trust and you're going to have to delegate. And that's also what enables companies to scale successfully. So I always, that's why I say starting with vision and values matters. And the startups I work with, they'll pitch investors saying, this is our vision and these are our values. Do you agree to our values? If not, that's going to be the document we come and talk to you about if there's a breakdown of why this isn't working or why we don't agree with each other. The same would then be true when you hire people and onboard people that you take them through that. That's part of the onboarding process. You're not just throwing them in, expecting them to perform like you'd want them to perform without giving them the tools to know what that looks like. So I think it's a lot about, again, setting it up from the beginning and then one, having an ongoing dialogue, but two, trusting that the people you're bringing in, if you've taken them through that process, are actually aligned with you because you can't control everyone and everything. That's impossible. All right. So now let, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about another fundamental part, which is money. How can a startup founder keep the lights on, meaning secure funding? And God knows how much respect I have for you all. I've been in your shoes and it's not a walk in the park, you know, the sleepless nights, the anxiety of paying bills, the hiring, firing, the insane roller coasters. So what would be some tips to startup founders 
that you would give right off the bat to close money or increase the chances. Mm-hmm. Well, what I also want to say when I found your podcast, I loved it because you showed how VCs often are also fundraising and kind of living a startup life at the same time right. on a different perspective and level. But I think it was really great listening to some of those episodes to be like, oh, you go through similar things in terms of trying to convince people to give you money. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and I think to the point of, is the question really how to manage it all? Like how to keep the lights on while taking care of yourself? Or what is the question? Can you say it one more time? Sorry. So how do you make sure that you increase your odds so that the investor perceives you as something that they should invest in? Mm. So then talking about how do you increase the likelihood that an investor will say yes to you? I would love to get your thoughts on this too, because obviously you're an investor. So I'll say what Mm -hmm. I have to say, and then let's see what you have (laughs) to say. So I think the first thing to know is that investors are investing to make money. And very often people forget this. Sometimes I think the impact investor label can be a little bit blinding because it seems like, oh, they just want to do good, but they're not philanthropists. They're trying to make money. I think if you're a startup, knowing that you have to present a business case is key. And I can't tell you how many pitch decks I sit and go through where I'm like, okay, so what's the business case? And are you pitching me from the point of view of how you're going to make me money, which is really what I care about and what I'm looking for and that clarity. That's why I always say that looking at your product market fit before you go talk to investors, nailing your sales pitch, having a sense of who your customer is, puts you in a much more advantageous position to negotiate because you're going to know you have more of a business versus taking in money for an idea, but it's going to take you a lot more to prove if there's actually something there. Um, And then investors are going to want a larger equity stake because you're more risky. So that's one thing you can look at. Another thing is knowing that if it's a visa, there's a question of what's the right money for you. There's money everywhere. And then it's just a question of what's the right money for the kind of business you're trying to build. That ties us back to vision and values in terms of how big of a company do you want to create? Many VCs are looking for that unicorn, that billion dollar company, Mm -hmm. that one investment of all the ones they make that's going to return the whole fund. But maybe you don't actually want to build a company that's that's that big and that's not your ambition. Then maybe VC money isn't the right choice for you. And there's other routes that you can go down and look for. So I think understanding what the investor wants, depending on the kind of investor they are, and then being able to tell that story is key. And it all comes down to what are you building and how are you going to make money? Absolutely. And I cannot stress that enough. You know, when you've been through multiple startups, you realize that this overly glorified VC-backed startup might not be your your own path. It might not yeah. just trigger the right level of happiness or, or even just accomplish the vision you want to build for yourself. And I think that's something that is a little bit misconceived for many founders entering the space is that the press release we always see is XYZ startup raised XYZ millions of dollars from whatever firm and we celebrate it. But we don't talk about the fact that it's a major obligation. And I can't tell you how many founders I know who don't really realize what they're getting into when they bring on investors. And then they also struggle with everything from losing equity in their company, losing control, having to bring more people on in decision-making situations, spending a lot of time communicating to the investors to keep them updated and making sure they're aligned with that vision versus actually doing the work. And they get super frustrated because they're like, like you said, I don't have enough time to actually be working. I'm spending all my time communicating to the investors and I'm constantly fundraising because that's what the cycle is. So there's a lot of obligation that comes with fundraising. And I think that's also important to be wary of before you get really excited and taking your first one, which is a huge honor. And I get why people's egos are so happy because the fact that someone believes in you and wants to give you money is huge. But there's many different ways to get money. And it depends on what you want to do, going back to the impact you want to have and what you really want to build and why you started a company to begin with. Entrepreneurship isn't easy. So like you got to stay in touch with that why. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for bringing that up. And a lot of our listeners are obviously thinking about raising money. 
So they're kind of past that stage or they think that this is the right path for them. So understanding the psychology of the investors is fundamental, is critical. And I can speak to it yeah. and you can probably compliment, you know, based on, on, uh, on your own experience. But as far as I, I've seen is um, investors, uh, especially VCs, are professional investors. That's their job, you know, to look at uh, hundreds of different cases and make decisions. So they're basically pattern recognition machines. So you've got to feed that machine, you know, hitting the right spots, using the right patterns. And I, I want to use a, a computer vision analogy that I, I'm just going to make up. <laughs> VCs are like deep learning algorithms made of all their life experiences, education, careers, startup successes and failures, traumas, dreams, and fears. Uh, so they've seen a lot of startup scenario and will default to the response that they've encountered before. In the past, if they've encountered uh, A as a success uh, over B, so they will tend to pick A every single day. Uh, so now you apply the 80-20 rule on top of it, and 80% of the successes and startup founders, uh, you know, uh, founders that look charismatic, they sound credible, they show a compelling vision, they speak uh, the right pitch, and already convince other investors. So you will ask me, so how do I get started with all this? First, you have to understand that it's 80% science and 20% art. If you do not do this, you will fail because VCs are just formatted to think a certain way. And the repeat founders understand that. You know, To win, they need to do that. And when you fresh this game, you romanticize the process of founding your own little poetic mm -hmm. path that will organically kneel, you know, help you nail this. Uh, but the truth is that you need to be deliberate from the start and practice over and over. So maybe a question to, to you, Annalise, is how can a founder manufacture that right persona uh, to play the, the perfect part? I'd actually love you to have you go deeper because you said there's a formula and that there's something that there's a pattern recognition. And it, it seems like you were alluding to a specific thing, but you didn't mention what that thing was. So what is sure. it that you think investors are really looking for that is the sweet spot? I, I, well, thanks for the <laughs> the prompts. So I, I think you need to now the seven key questions, you know, an investor wants answered in the first call and email, whatever you send their way. So the seven questions are, so one, how big is the market? The TAM, right? The total addressable market. If you do not convince the investor that this is large enough, they will just, you know, not consider your case. Number two mm -hmm. is what's your unique insight? How differentiated are you? And often you need to be more differentiated than better than the competitors. Number three is why now? And why here and now? This is particularly important in climate tech because hardware deep tech solutions, uh, which are the real solution to the CO2 problem, if you ask me, will only blow some if there is a right regulatory environment, enabling technologies and market readiness. So number four, uh, what's your progress? How far along in that you know development and innovation curve are you? Is this really the tipping point so that VC money can fuel that growth? Or is it too early? You know, the TRL, the technology readiness level, is just too, you know, nascent for them to invest. Uh, number five is what's your business model? You know, is it a product innovation? Is it a business innovation? And six, who's on your team? Why are you uniquely qualified to deliver on this? And seven, what do you want? You know, why this money? Why now? And how much money do you need? And the more homework you've done on structuring that round, the more serious it will come across on the other side. So that, you know, if you ask for a certain amount of money, it doesn't sound insane. And then you need to set the right valuation. That's a whole conversation of its own. But if totally. you do not have, if you haven't done this, this homework of thinking about these key questions, you're probably going to get turned down by 80, 90% of investors. Did you come up with those key questions or are those from 
somewhere else. Now, this is kind of mainstream. Um, you know, most investors need to see that in the pitch deck, a Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. And I can, you know, put that in the show notes as well as, as you know, consider the seven questions of the, just the best way to pitch your business. Yeah. And I would agree with everything you listed. But I think what you said before, that that is what you find when you Google on the internet, like this is what a pitch uh-huh. deck needs to include. But what I love that you said before is that in reality, you can include all of that, but investors are going to decide based on emotion and whatever thesis they built on the space you're investing in. So it's important to know that they're getting pitched hundreds of times. They've seen a lot of companies. They have a very specific idea of what they think will work and what won't work. You won't know that going into the pitch, which can be very frustrating because you're like, hey, this is a waste of my time. But at the same time, it's helpful to know that it's not always you. You might have a great Mm. deck, but let's say an investor already invested in the space that you're working in. Then they want to diversify their portfolio in another area. They're done doing that vertical. They made their bet in that space unless they're a specified fund. So there's a lot of other factors when it goes into that. And it's also can be, what were their other interactions? Do they really believe in the space? Like there's so much in that emotional. And what I think really matters when we're talking about early stage startups is that they're also really looking at you as the founding team, knowing that it might take a while to build this business. So it's a lot about, do you have the right team to take it over the finish line, knowing there will be a lot of revisions on product market fit, knowing there will be all kinds of challenges along the way. And I think that's where it goes back to asking that investor, well, what's your vision for the future of the space? Why are you investing in us? Like turn the tables. I always, I call this personal due diligence because we always have to go through financial due diligence and legal due diligence. And it's like normal to spend hundreds of hours on that. But what about the one of the actual people that you're going to be working with all the time and making sure that those boxes are checked too? And that's not to say it'll all work out perfectly, but it's an important part of the process to really make sure that you have the same concept for how you want to create impact in the climate space, in the food space, whatever it might be, because that's going to influence how you help each other in the long run. Yeah, definitely. And and you're right that beyond those seven questions, there's uh, just a lot of bias that comes with every investor. You know, and you can put a team of about four or five investors in one room, which is often the case in investment committees and VCs. And each of every one of them is completely biased by their previous experiences. So you might have a certain feeling because this founder just came across a certain way. And it reminds you of, um, I don't know, Steve Jobs and the level of passion that this guy had just pitching his, his deck. And you're, it was kind of nerdy and super going straight into granular level features and you want to see that in a founder. But then the, the next uh, investor next to you will want to see the opposite. Someone who just doesn't get tied up into feature level you know, description, but much more macro and macro all the time. I have to add in that I love that about your show too. When you interview VCs, you talk about how they actually make decisions in the fund and show that it's not easy. Like there's a lot of talking with different people. How do you get them to say yes? They all have a different process that they go through with this investment committee. And pulling back the curtain on that, I think, is also super helpful to understand why it sometimes takes a while or why you can't quite seem to get a straight answer or why it feels difficult. Because there isn't always agreement on the other side. And somebody has to be fighting for you. And what is the case they're making? Are they willing to champion that. I also think that point of soft skills really matters. And I work with my coaching clients on that a lot, which is you bring an energy to a meeting and either you're walking in with confidence, knowing what you're worth and being able to clearly communicate it, or you're not really knowing what to say exactly. And an investor is going to sniff that out. And that goes back to, do they believe in you as a CEO, as a leader, as the founding team? And do you have that underlying confidence. It's such a thing of safety. Like, are you safe for me to put my money into? Because that's going to influence whether or not they do it. And that's not something that's 
on the slides. That's like how you write your emails from the very first moment you make contact with them. Do you have grammatical mistakes? What clothing do you wear? Do you look like small things that we say don't really matter and shouldn't matter, but they actually matter a lot. And all those micro interactions add up to also influencing the decision. Um, I always say too, if your deck is not professionalized, meaning you got a graphic designer to work on it and make it look good, that's an easy first one where it's going to make your company look worth way more than it is. But people don't invest in that. Founders don't necessarily invest in that. Again, it goes back to what level of professionalism are you presenting that really would make someone want to give you millions of dollars and believe that you're going to be the next big thing. I'm glad that you bring that up. So I I want to throw um, away a couple of tips as well. If I were to start again a startup, I would probably hire a graphic designer right off the bat. You're right. Yes. Uh, you can do stuff on Canva, you know, these days and get something, you know, templated and, and decent. Or you can buy a template, you know, that is kind of right off the bat, you know, 50, 60, 60 bucks. But putting 200, 300, I don't know, 400, it's something that is not going to break the bank. I mean, hopefully that doesn't really, you know, shorten your runway that much. It can help you make it 10x, you know, impact on the investor. Another expense that I would do is hire a, a virtual yeah, assistant. Yeah, virtual assistant. Totally. Hire someone in the Philippines, in Indonesia, somewhere, che- Egypt, you know, on, on Upwork, you can find people, you, you pay them 15, 20 euros an hour or even less, but I, I, you know, you want quality and you ask them to send out the emails and then answer and then do sort of the, the quantity work. So you can focus you as an executive on the quality and you don't get mixed up on, on both. A hundred percent. There's small things too, where we, you, it goes back to the fact that the founding team can't do everything. So learning to delegate early, that's going to enable you to delegate more in the long run. And it might just be small tasks. Like if you're doing any task that's super repetitive and you're like, why did I just spend an hour doing this thing? You need to delegate that to someone on Upwork. I also have a virtual assistant. It's game changing. There's just so you need to. It's also looking at from the point of view of how much is an hour of your time worth? And then do you really need to be doing this? Or is there another activity you can be doing that's going to make more money for the business? So treating yourself as a CEO and stepping into that vision or the CEO, CMO, but stepping into the vision of five years from now, would I be doing this activity or someone else doing it? And from the beginning, can I already be acting like the leader of that company? That again is a like a message to the universe almost that you're going for something more. And the same with getting on paper, the visual identity that is of a bigger company, not a DIY thing is going to help people to see what you see. And you can speak to them all you want, but unless you can create that, whether it's the wireframe or the, you know, create the visual, people will buy into that more. They get it. They won't necessarily get what you're just telling them and talking to them about. That's right. And we spoke about the psychology of the investor that you absolutely need to understand if you're approaching them. But there's also a psychology of the successful founder and setting aside a budget, you know, a certain amount of budget that you just literally burn and you expect that to burn every month is Mm -hmm. really what is going to set you aside. I've started multiple companies and the first time founder mistake that I see being repeated is being too close to your money, to your budget, you know, making sure that you have a a two-year, three-year runway. But the problem is, if you do not invest enough in your business with a VA, with a graphic designer, with maybe de- you know, delegating the key task, uh, structuring, incorporating the company, those, those kind of expenses, you will just uh, drag. You know, this thing will drag mm-hmm. forever. You will not get off the ground. Yes. And I think it's just, again, important to highlight that so much of starting your own business is going to bring up your personal stuff. So even investing in having both a therapist and a coach, therapists help you look backwards. So when you're feeling triggered by whatever's going on, because you're going to face a lot, you have a team and a support team helping you there. Coaches like myself help you look forward of where are we going? What are we doing? And Mm. it's a bit more business mentoring and advice. 
but it's having a thought partner on the executive level, even at an early stage, which you can talk to your co-founders all you want, but getting a third party can be super helpful. And you just need space, white space in your calendar to think strategically because there's so many small things to do. But that's another good example of if I would tell, I would tell founders to put that in the budget, like having the budget that you can afford a support system for the founding team to deal with all the stuff that they're going to face, because there's a lot of your own personal development that comes up like you just mentioned. Yes, absolutely. Wow, we could talk for hours about the, the the tips for founders. I also wanted to switch gears a little bit and speak about tips for investors, particularly mm -hmm. angel investors. And I know that you, you've, uh, you've helped a number of them. You're active on that front as well. And yeah. let's be blunt and honest. What is the role of an angel investor? Yes. And you, you have a course on this too, right? I also want to send people mm -hmm. there if that's the case. Yes. So I want your perspective on this as well. So I have been an angel investor. And then I've mainly worked with a lot of founders who bring in... The first money they're bringing in is typically an angel investor. And what I mainly see is that if you're a first-time founder, like we talked about, you haven't really been through the whole cycle yet. You don't know how it goes. That first money feels like such a big deal because it is the first one you got. But in reality, as you fundraise more and more money that becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. The issue that comes up from a relationship perspective is that the angels might get too much power or it might feel like they're the big fish when that's not going to be true forever. But because you convinced your first investor, that's just kind of how you've pandered to them and what it looks like. Or they get too much of an equity stake or there's so many things in it. Um, I think most in, like angel investors in my perfect world, <laughs> in my perfect world, they would be coming in on pretty standard terms and I've even heard one VC say that if you're doing angel investing, it's like gambling. Like you're not necessarily thinking this company is going to be doing anything. I would disagree on that because I think a lot of angel investors are doing it because they really want to make a difference. They want to nurture a company. They believe this is how they can make that impact. But there are certainly others who are just making investments everywhere. That's also true. But I think for me, what makes a really good angel investor is one, they have standard terms. They don't expect too much from the startup because again, founders don't have time to communicate with every single investor they bring on and keep them up to date. But it is really important for those startup founders to send out quarterly updates on what's going on and here's where we need help and actually accept help when it's offered to them. With that said, when I think of myself as an angel investor... I think of myself as doing door opening work. So if a founder needs something and I can help them with that, I say yes. That goes back to do we really have trust that I'm willing to open up my network and that I'm willing to vouch for them and I believe in the company and all that other stuff. I think it's about being humble. If you have industry experience, that's even better. I see a lot of people invest in industries they don't really understand. And then it's a lot of work for the founder to explain why they're making a decision. Or that investor has unrealistic expectations of how fast they're going to see a return or how fast the business is going to grow because they're not familiar with the industry and what it really takes. It also goes back to if you're getting angels in, you want their network and their experience. So do they really bring that to the table or are they just giving you money? You know, there's different things you can weigh in this conversation of what matters to you. But those would be some of the main things I would say. And I really want to stress patience and from that beginning perspective. I also know angel investors who put money in and they do absolutely nothing and they just sit there and that's fine. That's, all, that, that's mm -hmm. also what some people do. So there's like a wide array of what it can be. I'm curious what you think is the right role or definition or what you typically see because you also see it the next step later, which is when a VC comes in and then you have to deal with the angels on the cap table. So what do you think? That's right. Well, so I've been on both sides, right? As an angel investor and as a VC. And so first, you need to understand that as an angel, you're particularly important in the first phase of a business. But comes phase two, three, four and the growth, you become peanuts. <laughs> so in the really grand scheme of things, you kind of disappear. You're just no longer relevant. You can definitely make introductions, but you cannot be in, you know, 
asking a lot from the founders. The founders are too busy growing their own business. They were too busy uh, structuring the, the fundraising round with the VCs. And it is a bit perceived the same way from the VC side. Unless you come up with enormous brand and you're widely uh, popular and recognized from, from the world and having you as part of the cap table really helps. 99% of investors are not, it's not the case. So from a VC perspective, having a, a clean cap table, which means not more than 10, 15 line items is key because it becomes really a hassle from an admin perspective to keep everyone you know, afloat to make decisions together. Although as an angel investor, you have such a small ownership share that you will not matter. And there's multiple ways to, to structure an angel investment into a business. If you're really, really early, sort of family money, your name might be on the cap table. But most often, um, you will probably an angel invest through a SPV, so a special purpose vehicle, meaning that you're pulling capital with 10, 15, 50 different investors. And it will be just one line item on the cap table, which means that the SPV manager will be the one responsible for updates and relaying the update to the rest of the angel group. And that is okay from a VC perspective, but you don't want dozens and dozens of names, which you're going to have to follow up on, you know, for admin decisions, uh, et cetera, et cetera which is a bit of a mess. I would love to dive into one thing you said, which is the demands that investors will make on startups. Because there's something from the angel perspective of, I think the influence an angel wants to have and that they, going back to that, a lot of investing is about emotions. Do you feel important? Do you feel like you're having sway in the company? Do you feel like you're steering the direction? But then there's also the fact that investors will make demands on startups can you talk a little bit about what that looks like from your point of view when it comes to dynamic between angels and investors and what startups can expect in terms of what VCs will ask from them? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. So startups um, need to understand the, the founders, and it's something that is not uh, taken as a, as a consensus yet. But you are expected from people that own a piece of the company, and you, you need to understand that we are in it together, right? The psychology is we are team members. From now on, they need regular updates. They just want to know what's going on on the hiring front, on the market side, the macro level. Are you, you know, clearing the gates that you were setting for yourself or are you running out of money? Mm -hmm. But also they want to help out solve the bigger problems. So uh, sending out a regular update helps everyone, the VCs, but potentially also the, the angel investors. The VCs are here to help you steer the wheel, but it's no longer the role of an angel investor. The angel investor is really in the background and they're being passive and they have no decision power. So as an angel investor, you cannot expect more than just receiving a, a quarterly. Uh, some send out a monthly update. I think quarterly more is more than enough. So I would say expectations is lowered. You know, you need to make sure that you're in it just uh, as a passive role and only expecting ongoing updates. So want to totally stress again, like the value of good communication in this. And I think a lot of times... The startup founders I speak with feel like they need to have all the answers and they need to be perfect and they need to be presenting that everything's perfect and it's only going up from here. Whereas investors do know that the reality is very difficult. Rarely are things perfect and they would rather have your honesty than not. So like the good structure of communication I recommend is say, like, how's it going? What's going well? What do you not know? And what are you unsure of? And just state the facts. Also, if you have certain goals you've laid out for a quarter of like, we're going to hit this much in sales, but you missed the mark, share your learnings. Why didn't you do that? Maybe something else came up as the priority, but providing that backwards perspective of why things happen the way they happen, because 
I also know many fund managers have so many deals they're following that they're not going to remember every single detail about what happened. They're not in the weeds day to day like you are. So I think that bigger perspective can also be helpful. Um, going back to the idea of creating safety in the founder investor relationship that you're giving this your best, you're working hard, you're going to call on them when you need help. But that bond is really something that needs to consistently be taken care of. Wow. Annalisa, we're coming out of time. This has been great. I would love to continue this conversation. Maybe we can have a part two at some point. So thanks so much for coming on, on the show. Thanks. To all of you guys, thanks for listening. As always, don't forget to subscribe. We have a newsletter on climateinsiders.co to stay updated on future episodes, but also to receive one tip every Saturday that I send out to boost your climate career, fun, or startup. Until then, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to another episode of Climate Insiders, the leading climate tech podcast in Europe. If you've enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Climate Insiders is brought to you by Clementum Capital, a late C to Series A climate tech VC. To learn more by Clementum Capital, apply for funding or become an LP, visit clementum.com.